The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Oranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, December 27th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my guest, Dr. Janet Levitin. Dr. Levitin has 29, over 29 years of experience as a pediatrician and offers a variety of treatment options in addition to conventional medicine, including homeopathy, herbs, and nutritional support. Dr. Levitin graduated from the George Washington University School of Medicine and completed her pediatric internship and residency at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. She's board certified in pediatrics and also served as a clinical instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Levitin practiced in the Boston area for many years and has more recently joined the team at the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center in Ohio. Today's topic, holistic pediatrics, homeopathy, and more. Welcome, Dr. Levitin. Thank you, Terry, for having me today. Well, Dr. Levitin, you have been practicing for about three decades. Before you considered a profession in medicine, what were your preconceptions about the field, and were they valid at the time, or do you feel that the philosophical underpinnings of the profession at large have changed? Well, Terry, when I started out in college, I was an English and psychology major, and along the way I became interested in science, and a couple of professors encouraged me to look at a career in medicine because it involved science, it involved helping people, and it was a good career for the future. I think I was very young and naive and didn't really quite understand what I was getting into because as soon as I got into medical school, I realized that things were being done in ways that I didn't really endorse or approve of, and it was a big adjustment period for me to actually be able to even stay in school. I saw, you know, the nutrition that was being provided in hospitals and the treatments that were being given. And frankly, right from the beginning, I was um, not completely on board with conventional medicine. And you asked if there have been changes in the field. Yes, I think there have. Definitely, historically, before I even got into it, you know, the AMA, the American Medical Association, was really founded, in a sense, to uh, put down homeopathy and osteopathy in schools of herbalism and other schools of thought. And then the Flexner Report, which came out in 1910, really streamlined medical education and made the education across all medical schools, you know, MD medical schools in the United States, very homogeneous. Hmm. Okay. That kind of sounds like a monopoly of philosophy or something like that. That's a good way to think of it, I believe. Yeah. Well, you made it through. And you graduated from the prestigious George Washington University School of Medicine in the early 80s and completed your pediatric internship and residency at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey, also a highly regarded institution. 
when you started your pediatric practice, what were the tools in the toolbox that pediatricians used, and did they actually treat a wide range of conditions at that time? Well, what I had observed in my training was that really it came down to a lot of steroids and a lot of antibiotics. And if that didn't work, you went back and tried more steroids and antibiotics. And I really felt very frustrated with having only those tools in a limited way in my toolkit. So even while I was still in medical school, I had begun researching other options, such as oriental medicine, midwifery, nutrition, chiropractic, homeopathy, with the knowledge that when I got out of medical school, I would do something different. And when I did get out of medical school and moved to Boston because I heard they had a well-developed holistic health community, I discovered and met some homeopathic doctors, and I chose that as my primary treatment modality, and that's been turned out to be an excellent choice for me over the years. Well, you know, you're more advanced than I was because as part of the socialization process of my growing up, I had never even heard the word homeopathy, so I guess the powers that be did a good job of uh, suppressing that, and I also found it interesting, Dr. Levitin, about how you said that the nutrition in hospitals was appalling, and of all places, that should be a, a place that had a good foundation for healing, but also, I don't think doctors heard a lot about, or doctors-to-be heard a lot about nutrition in medical school. Uh, no, Terry, that's really true. Perhaps nowadays there is more attention put to nutrition, but back then I think there was virtually no attention put to nutrition, perhaps at the biochemical level, but nothing about practical nutrition and you know, organics, vegetables, fruits, whole foods, nothing like that. Yeah, even today I'm hearing not so much. Um, well, I'd like to read a favorite quote of mine from a 2011 academic pediatrics report, and regular listeners probably have this memorized by now, but it's really important. Here's the quote from academic pediatrics. An estimated 43% of U.S. children, 32 million, currently have at least one of 20 chronic health conditions assessed, including 54.1% when overweight, obesity, or being at risk for developmental delays are included. So you are an experienced clinician who, before moving to Ohio, practiced in the metropolitan Boston area. Please tell our listeners about the changes you've seen in children's health from the late 1980s through the early 1990s to the present day. And, for example, are there things that you didn't see much of in the past but that are now at epidemic proportions? Terry, I think there are so many things that are moving into epidemic proportions now, if not already at epidemic proportions. Uh, the first thing I can name is allergies and anaphylaxis. When I first started my practice in 1986, I, I don't even remember patients with allergies. Maybe one or two or three people had some mild allergies. Now I have to say that pretty much everyone who walks through the door has allergies of one form or another, whether they be mild or severe. Um, I know that peanut allergy and anaphylaxis has climbed steadily for the past 20 years. It doubled between 1997 and 2002 um, to the point where in 2008, upwards of 2,000 children in the U.S. had peanut allergy or anaphylaxis. Um, other things I could talk about are asthma and eczema. In the past, I definitely saw asthma and eczema, but it was pretty much exclusively related to family history. Anyone who came in with allergy, with asthma or eczema, you could almost be assured that there was a family member, a parent, an aunt or an uncle, a close relative who had it. Nowadays, I see 
children with no family history can come in with asthma and eczema that I believe is related to some of the things we'll be talking about um, in terms of changes in the environment and what our children are exposed to. Um, I think reflux and gastrointestinal problems have increased. Um, this can be due to inappropriate feeding of children, not necessarily due to parents' um, uh, bad intentions, but just because the food supply is not great and the education about nutrition may not be that good. Um, overuse of antibiotics contributes to these GI problems. And also something interesting, which hopefully we'll talk about later, is the uh, change to the supine or back sleeping um, position, which was introduced um, sometime in the 90s. And this also has led to an increase in GI problems because children don't have the same pressure on their stomach that they used to have when sleeping on their abdomen. Um, of course, we have to mention autism spectrum disorders and related neuro neurological conditions. Um, if one considers them related, you know, ADD, ADHD, seizure disorders, learning disabilities. And by the way, I've heard that learning disabilities, children in school, as many as one in six have a diagnosed learning disability. So that's even a higher number than you were mentioning at the introduction to this um, topic. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, back in 1994, I believe it was, the CDC came out with an autism alarm, and um, I don't remember what the acronym ALARM, A-L-A-R-M, stood for, but the CDC came out with this autism alarm, and um, that cited one in six children with, like, a behavioral or developmental problem, even back in 1994. So uh, it's pretty... Quite a while ago. It could be worse. Yeah, um, yeah some people well, were thinking one in three. It could, it could be one in three. I'm not, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the latest data, but it's, it's obviously an extremely high and what I would consider unacceptable number. Um, I did see a chart in the... Um, a Jaffe and Schwartz article in the um, Autism Science Digest uh, issue one, and uh, their chart shows that autism was at one in 10,000 back in the 70s, and at the time their chart ends, it, it's at more than one in 100. I'm, I'm sure mm -hmm. it's more than that, especially in males. I also noticed that in there's different points in the chart at which the um, rate of rise of autism takes an uptick. Uh, for example, I believe... Um, 2007, and I'm guessing, um, we'll get into this later, but I'm guessing that's when the flu vaccine was, uh, came into a recommendation for all infants on a yearly basis. Um, so this is very disturbing to me to see this massive increase in autism, autism spectrum disorders. And another thing which um, I've been interested in is plagiocephaly, which is an abnormal shaped head. I'm not sure if you have seen a baby who has a flattened back of the head flattened on one side so the head becomes asymmetrical. Um, that's something I started seeing a lot of after the Back to Sleep campaign was introduced in 1992 and officially launched in 1994. Um, children are sleeping with their heads on their back with their heads turned partly to one side and then they develop a, a flattened back of the head. Um, also, interestingly, in my research, I found that sleeping in that position on the back is associated with delayed developmental milestones, um, both social, gross motor, and overall developmental milestones. That was from a 1998 study. I thought that was very interesting. And yeah. the conventional medical community's response to that is to create an industry of helmets to put on children's heads to help them remold and reshape. And all I can say is, what's wrong with this picture? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, 
years and years, uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years of babies knowing how they should sleep. And, uh, you know, might I add anything but to, to blame or to question vaccines, which some people think are culpable in sudden infant death syndrome and, you know, cot death. But uh, first you... You wouldn't want to look at that. You just put the baby on their back instead and create the plagiocephaly and create an industry of helmets instead. Okay, let's get into causes. Um, you've mentioned some of them. You've alluded to some of them at this point. But before we go to break, let's talk about what you think, uh, in addition, caused some or all of these conditions. Are the causes all different? Do some of them or all of them share common roots? Well, um, that's a lot of questions, but we'll start with what I see as some of the causes. Um, I, I have to put vaccines at the top of the list. I mean, when I was a child, back in the 1950s and 60s, we basically received later on in our childhood, maybe the, the, you know, the grade school years, uh, a couple of DPT vaccines and a couple of polio vaccines. The DPT was introduced in the mid-40s. The polio vaccine, the killed vaccine, was introduced in 1955, and the, in 1962, the oral vaccine was licensed. So we didn't get too many vaccines. Um, in 1971, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was licensed. The Hib vaccine was licensed in 1985 and did contain, um, by the way, peanut oil undisclosed uh, as an ingredient and the theory that it's brought up by Heather Frazee, Heather Fraser in her book, The Peanut Allergy Epidemic, is this inclusion of peanut oil in the vaccine um, essentially contributed in a major way to the peanut allergy epidemic. Dr. Levinson, let's pick up with that. It's really interesting and important, and we're going to pick up with that when we come back from break, if we may. Um, we're going to take a break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back with Dr. Janet Levinson. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Janet Levitin, and we're having a really interesting conversation about the rise in uh, children's health conditions. And I just want to give out Dr. Levitin's website, which is www.janetlevatin.com. Dr. Levitin, before the break, we were talking about, um, for uh, in specific peanut allergy, you cited Heather Fraser's book. And can you pick up, you were talking about um, hip shots, I think, last. Yes, um, the HIP, as I mentioned, was licensed in 1985, and when that cohort of children, that generation of children, hit kindergarten and first grade, that's when the peanut allergy epidemic came to light and became very well known because teachers were running into these peanut allergic children. Anyway, to move on, hepatitis B was added to the schedule for one-day-old babies in 1991, and for me, this is an extremely black period in medical history because my personal belief is that that addition of the hepatitis B for one-day-old babies has had an extremely negative effect on our children and has essentially caused, added just that last drop to the bucket and created the autism spike that we're seeing because the time frame is exactly the same. My feeling is that a one-day-old baby just cannot tolerate the hepatitis B vaccine and come through it healthy and, and, and unscathed. And Dr. Levitin, if I may interject, um, back in the secret Simpsonwood meetings held at the Simpsonwood Retreat Center in Norcross, Georgia, where various um, members from various regulatory agencies and and pharmaceutical representatives met, um, I think someone said that all the damage, you know, is done by three months. And certainly that would include the hepatitis B vaccine that was given within 24 hours of birth, just just ridiculous. Well, the damage is done in three months, but then there's a lifetime of families and individuals right. dealing with that damage. So right. mm-hmm. it may be uh, tr- triggered in the first three months, but um, there's a lifetime that, that comes after that. Yeah, and certainly then, dumping a bunch of more toxins on top of that. Then, um, then we had the, chicken, the lovely chickenpox vaccine that uh, was licensed in 1995. Uh, the pneumococcal vaccine, which was licensed in 2000, and the rotavirus vaccine in 2006 after a failed attempt in 1998 uh, because the first version caused intussusception, which is a serious intestinal condition of infants. I might double back and say that the Hib vaccine, one of the initial versions of that came out, actually caused meningitis in some babies and had to be retracted, and a new version uh, came out. So these are um, some of the influences in the vaccine world. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there's many other influences that we could point to. Uh, I, would, I think that World War II uh, was a time period in which many different pollutants were introduced. Uh, we saw the introduce, introduction of pesticides, fertilizers, and plastics. A lot of these uh, chemicals, I think, came out of the war effort and things that were invented for the war and then were put into... Uh, civilian use, lots of um, persistent organic pollutants uh, were widely used during the boom in the industrial production after World War II. Thousands of synthetic chemicals were introduced into commercial use. Uh, A lot of these chemicals were never um, tested to see how they would affect human health. 
chemicals used in pest control, disease control, crop production industry. I think also we saw penicillin being introduced and coming into widespread use, the antibiotic era. We also saw some other toxic influences like the introduction of uh, credit and mortgages, uh, all of which we're seeing the, um, the downside and the final results of now. And just to, um, I just want to qualify something I said. I think Simpsonwood was looking at Samarasol, the uh, mercury-containing component of vaccines, mm-hmm. but certainly I think that the later use, I mean later in the um, the infant's history of uh, things like MMR um, was uh, certainly had very deleterious consequences. Uh, well, you've mentioned all of these various environmental influ- influences, Dr. Levitin, and you've given us some different uh, time frames. And how do these time frames relate to the increases in the childhood pathologies that we're seeing in epidemic or other proportions? Well, I think we've just seen a slow decrease in the state of children's health. Uh, In my own experience, I can once again say that that introduction of the hepatitis B vaccine for one-day-old infants has just led to a disaster in the developmental status of our children where we see all of these autism spectrum disorders, not to mention ADD, ADHD, uh, the list goes on. Um, I think uh, there's probably a lot of literature that could be looked at from a historical perspective to look at what inventions were introduced at different times, what uh, chemicals and products came into the environment, and then, you know, track children's health. But I think that Overall, it's sort of a chemical soup we're living in. Once again, referring to Jaffe and Schwartz's article in Autism Science Digest, Issue 1, they break toxic influences into five categories, which I think are pretty decent categories. Toxic metals, which you've already mentioned, but that's only one thing. That could be mercury and dental amalgams, mercury in the form of thimerosal and vaccines. We also have aluminum and other toxic metals. Um, Volatile organic compounds, which are things that put pollutants into the air, Paint, paint strippers, cleaning supplies, pesticides, cleaning solutions, disinfecting solutions, etc. Then they mention persistent organic pollutants, and these are things that are either intentionally produced chemicals, such as DDT and fragrance products that are in so many products today, and also unintentionally produced chemicals, such as dioxins that result from burning trash, both on an industrial level and a you know, citizen level not to mention electromagnetic fields, which is another one of their categories, cell phones, TVs, microwaves, that list goes on as well. And then radioisotopes, um, things like lasers, metal detectors, injectable dyes for medical procedures, and um, that list goes on as well. Okay, but you have all these, autism is a pandemic. This is not a problem that's limited to class, to race, to heritage, to socioeconomic status or income. Some kids are eating fish. Some kids aren't eating fish. Some moms are eating fish. Some moms aren't eating fish. There are all these different variables. What's the, what do most of these kids have in common? Well, I think it's probably just uh, we could look at it as an overload of the system. You know, one child may be getting toxics in their food. Another may be getting over-vaccinated, another may be exposed to too many electromagnetic fields. Uh, it's sort of a, a chemical and toxic soup that we're living in. Um, 
And I think unless you take measures to avoid these uh, influences in your environment, that you're bound to succumb to some of the effects. I mean, I have seen unvaccinated children who are autistic. They're probably um, been exposed to a lot of other influences. Well, I think that there's a couple interesting possibilities there, too. Um, I've heard about a theory of horizontal transmission um, where viruses can be, you know, transmitted horizontally uh, from one sibling to another. That's a theory. Um, and uh, I, think, I think that's a, a worthwhile theory to consider, Terry. Also, you know, if you think of something like homeopathy or other forms of energy medicine, sometimes something transmits horizontally or laterally just through energetics. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but, um, you know, if a whole environment or condition, the conditions for a certain, um, you know, medical condition get created and then it almost starts to spread. I, I think they say the same thing about obesity, that people who, more people will develop obesity. The more people are obese, then the more people will develop it because it, the, the influences sort of spread laterally. I mean, these are very complex uh, things to tease out, but I, I think there are definitely interesting uh, lines of thought. Yeah, and I think, we, yeah, we should definitely be looking at these things. Um, I did interview a chiropractor who had a child who was not vaccinated because chiropractors are um, really prudent about those kinds of things, but the child had GI issues that preceded the diagnosis of autism, and so that just shows us how important the gut is in the neurodevelopmental health oh, yes. of, Very of the child. Yeah. So any and then anything that's going to go in and you know decimate the gut uh, is going to have if if introduced at the uh, pertinent developmental period can affect uh, neurocognitive health and function. So in your clinical practice. What have you seen insofar as the health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children or kids who were growing up in a cleaner environment versus a not cleaner environment? Well, I would say that a couple of categories of patients came to me in the past, which were either people who were naturally oriented towards doing, thing in a, doing things in a holistic, natural way. These would be the, the mothers who didn't take any medications during their pregnancy, ate very healthy, ate organic food, you know, delivered naturally if possible, and then breastfed and raised their children um, in a very natural way. Then there were people who came to me who children were sick and they needed help through homeopathy and other means. And these often were children who hadn't had the benefits of um, this type of a, of a lifestyle prior to coming to me. Maybe they were vaccinated or had had other problems. So I would say that you know, certainly I can see unvaccinated children who have illnesses, and then I've seen unvaccinated children who are extremely robust and healthy, you know, definitely a large percentage of them. I have seen some vaccinated children who, oh, by the luck of the draw, have come through relatively healthy, and then I've seen vaccinated children with, you know, devastating consequences. I think um, uh, Dr. Tenpenny, who I work with, has an analogy that she uses. She said you can take a pile of weeds and put a little uh, cherry bomb or something, a small explosive under it, and when it goes off, you know, maybe the pile of weeds won't be disturbed very much or maybe they'll just they'll scatter here and there. They'll go anywhere. 
you essentially don't really know when you add a vaccine or some other toxin into the system what the outcome is going to be. Um, It's just pretty much impossible to predict. So once again, I think some children may withstand vaccines and come through it all right, but there's just no way to know up front. We don't have the sophistication to test people in advance and understand who's going to have a negative outcome and who's going to have a positive outcome. So it becomes very difficult to make these decisions. Right, and it's it's not genetics because um, t- you cannot have a ge- genetic epidemic, and this is an epidemic, a true ac- epidemic. Mind Institute ruled out a long time ago that it had to do with things like demographic shift or diagnostic substitution and all of that. Um, 10,000 genes just don't wake up one morning and say they're going to express themselves. Oh, uh, really, as Mark Blackfell, um, who I know, has said, you know, millions and billions of dollars have been poured down a sort of an empty hole trying to pin it on genetics, which maybe there are some genetic uh, links, uh, tie-ins, but it's obviously not just a genetic change because what you say is absolutely correct. Right, Um, and even in those studies, it's just a small percentage of the sample that even had that um, genetic marker in the first place. So, um, yeah, something something environmental has to has to trigger it. I mean, you uh, and I were and having an interesting conversation earlier, which was about the children of a generation of vaccinated parents and what effect might this have on the DNA, and is this considered genetic? No, it's probably considered environmental because the DNA of the parents may have been changed through being vaccination. Then they're producing a child, and perhaps DNA with errors or faults, and it is being passed along. This yeah, becomes very um, uh, difficult to track and also probably difficult to treat. So, so children who have, have encountered toxicity through vaccines who, whose uh, pathways weren't able, you know, some kids were able to withstand poison more than others. But at some point, everybody gets affected. Um, by some, at some point, everybody's not quite so bright or not quite so healthy, um, even if their particular genetic makeup was able to withstand poison better than the next kids. Um, there was a mouse study, I think, that had to do with the marisol, and the female mice withstood the mercury better than the male mice. Uh, females have protective estrogen, and males have that yucky testosterone that interacts poorly with mercury. But, at, mm-hmm. you know, at some point, if you throw enough mercury at anybody... It's not good for them. Oh, of, of, of course not. It's not good for any of us. Um, it's bad for the brain function. It's bad for the enzymes of the body. And when you talk about a little newborn baby, one day old, getting a mercury-containing injection, it actually breaks my heart. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, I find it extremely upsetting. Okay, so what, before we go to break, we're going to ask one more question and then go to break. Why is it important to understand the real legitimate causes of the respective conditions? Well, in order to try to remedy the conditions or to try, more importantly, to avoid the conditions, I think it's very important to understand if we really could determine that vaccinations, for example, are contributing to autism, autism spectrum disorders, parents would have more information in their toolkit for making these decisions. They would be more fully informed. I mean, I find it pretty reprehensible that the powers that be, you know, the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, just adamantly refuse to look at the mounting tide of evidence that has accumulated about vaccines being uh, causative or at least partially causative. 
um, you know, I once again, I find it very reprehensible. Um, I think it's extremely important for parents to inform themselves, particularly about elective procedures that don't have to be done on any particular day or actually really even done at all. Therefore, I think information is key. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. I'd like to remind you that Dr. Levitin's uh, web address is www.janetlevitin.com, J-A-N-E-T-L-E-V-A-T-I-N.com. We'll be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to this program sponsor, OxyHealth. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health, and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We are back with Dr. Janet Levitin, who practices at the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center in Ohio. And actually, let me give you that website. Um, this updated website is tenpennyimc.com. That's T-E-N-P-E-N-N-Y-I-M-C.com. Dr. Levitin, you have some interesting information on that site as well. Oh, yes, I posted some blogs on um, various conditions. I've talked about um, uh, why do doctors, why do pediatricians push, push vaccines so much, and I've talked about GI and reflux problems, and there's, there's a few other blogs, not to mention that the whole website is a beautiful site full of fantastic information. Okay, wonderful. Um, I just had an afterthought about some things that were touched upon in the first couple of segments. Um, you mentioned eczema and how... Um, 
it could have been in the distant past, you know, like from more from family history, but now it's not so much. There's not so much of a family history leading to eczema. And I, I know a child who was actually vaccinated on top of having eczema and being given, you know, corticosteroid ointment for it. And a homeopath um, had said to me, that that's a no-no because the eczema signals um, a physiological imbalance. Is is this all accurate? Well, um, yes, I think it is. I'm really glad you brought this point up because it brings a couple other uh, comments to my mind. You asked how medicine had changed, and one of the things back when I was studying with some old-time pediatricians and studying for my boards, I heard an old-time gentleman pediatrician say, when a child has eczema, don't vaccinate them when they have a breakout. Just postpone the vaccinations. And if a child is under 10 pounds, don't vaccinate them. Postpone the vaccines until they're at least 10 pounds. Nowadays, you don't hear anything like that. A child has eczema, they have asthma. They have a fever. They're a premature baby and they're only three pounds. You still vaccinate them. Um, and, um, yes, talking about um, eczema, vaccinating when you have eczema, and then or vaccinating at all and getting a steroid or a fever medication, in a sense you're not allowing the body to uh, discharge whatever it might need to discharge from that vaccine if it's going to attempt to do that. Therefore, the reaction is going to sort of um, go inward and implode instead of explode. So that's another thing that came about is doctors routinely recommending, you know, we know your child is going to be uncomfortable and have a fever after vaccination, so give this Tylenol up front, suppress that fever. I mean, the fever and the reaction is not a great thing, but suppressing it is is not a great thing either. And now we know that Tylenol suppresses uh, sulfation and glutathione, and glutathione is the body's major antioxidant, which is quite necessary if you're trying to handle a vaccination. It's all just terribly sad. It seems like medical arts are no longer arts. Well, someplace that is practicing medical arts, is the Tenpenny Integrative Medical Center in Ohio, where you are now practicing. And I know that this practice values the therapeutic use of things like osteopathy. So can you please tell us about osteopathy and how it's helpful, especially in patients with a diagnostic label of autism? Well, uh, once again, I'll refer to the Autism Science Digest, which is a beautiful journal. Um, Thank you. And there is an article by Sean Centers in there, which I, I just loved. It was just beautiful. I loved the way he talked about, first of all, considering the whole person and not labeling a child as autistic, but considering the child to have autistic symptoms, therefore just having the mindset that this can be cured, this can be remediated. I mean, certainly the techniques that are used, um, gentle manipulative, manipulative techniques that will um, help to uh, reverse birth trauma because it has been shown that birth trauma is associated with autism or more people with, let's see if I can say this correctly, uh, you're more likely to have birth trauma if you have autistic features than if you don't. So um, correcting um, uh, the the, uh, bony problems that come about uh, as a result of the, the birth trauma and allowing better circulation into the brain. Also, the vagus nerve is balanced. Um, The vagus nerve relates to the amygdala, which has to do with emotions and aggression. It also relates to general arousal, sleep cycles, GI function and hearing. It has a lot to do with the whole autonomic nervous system. So I think osteopathy, which we do have here at our center, is a wonderful modality for many people, um, you know, people with autism 
symptoms included. And it's very kind of you to, to mention Dr. Sean Centers as well, um, another uh, osteopath, and, um, and thank you for mentioning Autism Science Digest. Well, you also use homeopathy, and how did you make the jump from being a medical doctor, kind of a philosophical segue there, you alluded to this earlier, going to a mainstream medical school uh, and accepting the scientific principles of homeopathy? Well, as I told you earlier, Terry, I never really bonded that well with conventional medicine and all the procedures and the theoretical basis of it, which actually there isn't a great theoretical basis for it. A lot of it is uh, seems to be very, you know, catch as catch can. You discover something uh, accidentally and then it becomes applied as a therapy. One of the things I do like about homeopathy is it is a definite system of medicine. There's a system whereby we choose our homeopathic medicines and give them to patients. And um, I, I like the system. I like the fact that it is uh, very gentle, it's easy to administer, and it's non-toxic, and it can promote some, some real healing for, for a whole variety of conditions. Okay. What published literature backs up the scientific validity of homeopathy? Well, there's lots um, published on that. If you go to the website of the American Institute of Homeopathy, which is the organization for homeopathic MDs, sort of analogous to the AMA, but for homeopathic doctors, there's some information on there. Also, um, there's an organization called Homeopathic Educational Services, and they keep a good record of all of the research that has been done. There are definitely a fair number of double-blind placebo-controlled trials, which is sort of the gold standard recognized by conventional medicine. That's pretty easy to do with homeopathy because all of the medicines look like small tablets or granules. They actually have different um, ingredients incorporated into them, but they look the same, so it's easy to produce a placebo. There are also outcome studies, um, and there's also quality-of-life studies where people themselves, and, and I also like this type of research, people themselves discuss how they feel after doing different interventions, including homeopathy. But that's where, what it really comes down to is how has how your life as a citizen been improved by any intervention you try? Right. So in general, how does homeopathy support the body's ability to maintain good health? Well, homeopathy essentially gives the body a signal to balance and self-correct its own self. So rather than giving um, a lot of conventional medication is what I call anti-medicine. You know, there's anti-seizure medications, anti-fever medications, antibiotics, anti-arrhythmics. Um, you know, the list goes on. And yes, sometimes we need anti-medicines because we have to bring a condition, an acute condition, under control. But long-term use of anti-medicines really just suppresses symptoms and doesn't cure problems or get at the underlying basis of why a condition is occurring. But homeopathy is a form of pro-medicine. It basically supports the body. It works with the symptoms the body has and helps the body to adjust and um, regulate those symptoms by, on itself, by itself. So it's, yeah. it's excellent and it's wonderful for children. And somebody told me that antibiotic means against life where something like probiotic, which you should, you know, can consider taking more of if you have... Um, a cold or, or flu or other illness. A probiotic means pro-life. So yeah, it's an interesting nomenclature. Mm -hmm. Positive thing. 
And with that, it seems like a good time to go to break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Uh, we'll be back with Dr. Janet Levitin, whose website is tenpennyimc.com, T-E-N-P-E-N-N-Y-I-M-C.com. Please visit there for really interesting blogs by Dr. Levitin. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, Oxy Health. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On mind, brain, and body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness, radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Janet Levitin, and before the break, we were talking about homeopathy, and now let's talk about diets and organic foods. And Dr. Levitin, why are things like the gluten-free, casein-free diet and using organic foods so important and helpful? Well, organic foods, if you can get bona fide organic foods, are free of a lot of the toxins that we talked about before, you know, metals, pesticides, um, these types of things, uh, toxic fertilizers. Um, I think it's tricky to get true organic foods these days because most of the organic companies have been bought up by big business like Coke, Pepsi, and Nestle. But I think if we use whole foods, uh, we're more likely to get uh, bona fide organic and healthier foods. I'm talking about eating, you know, like an actual vegetable, a green bean, a broccoli, some rice, a piece of chicken, a piece of fish, whole foods as opposed to things that come out of packages, which aren't probably um, organic in the way we like to think of organic and also aren't as nutritious for us. And you're not talking about the organic arsenic used in the chicken feed to feed a lot of commercial animal farm kinds of chickens. I'm not talking about organic arsenic. <laughs> if that's what you said. No, I'm talking about organic, meaning that it's raised free of you know, pesticides and fertilizers and it meets certain uh, standards that are, are set by regulating bodies. I think a gluten-free, casein-free diet is um, is interesting. It's one of the interventions that parents have said helps their children the most. Uh, with autism, we ha- we touched on it, but we didn't talk about it in detail, but there's often a lot of injury to the gut. I think part of this may be due to the hepatitis B vaccine and definitely other influences, but the, di- the absorption function is uh, impaired, therefore things 
that shouldn't be absorbed whole are getting absorbed and going through the bloodstream, going up into the brain and acting as faulty neurotransmitters or blocking neurotransmitters. Or gluten and casein are a couple of these these components. So um, just clinically speaking, a gluten-free, casein-free diet seems to have done quite a bit for quite a number of children on the spectrum. And when things go through... Um, an impaired gut wall, too, the immune system's going to send chemical messengers, which can be pro-inflammatory messengers that um, create uh, inflammatory uh, reactions and irritation in the system. And, and, you know, as the gut goes, so goes the body. You've got a dysfunction in the gut, then a dysfunction in the immune system, and then that translates up into a dysfunction in the nervous system and the brain and neurocognitive effects, deleterious effects. Oh, yes, all of that is true, and a large part of the nervous system actually resides in the intestines. In fact, there's a whole second nervous system there. So it's very complex, and I think uh, some of these foods that we're talking about, some of these products, are definite toxins that if we keep out of the diet, we're going to see our children doing better. Right, and so many parents have. You know, I think this would be a really good point uh, of the show, Dr. Levitin, for you to talk about um, ARI's rating scale because... Uh, I know you like the fact that parents had a lot of input into that in an actual practical situation watching their child. Yes, when I attended the um, Autism Research Institute conference uh, a couple of years ago, I got a, a copy of the parent ratings of behavioral effects of biomedical interventions. That's a long name, but the point of, of it was a list of all different types of interventions that parents could try for their children on the spectrum or have... Or have um, prescribed for them, and interestingly, and then parents rated these interventions in terms of how they help their children. Interestingly, pretty much the only conventional medicines that seemed to help much were Nystatin and Diflucan, which are anti-yeast, anti-candida medications. No other medications seemed to really pop up on the list as um, things that helped much. Um, interventions that were rated best were um, detoxifying, uh, on the list, it says chelation, although it doesn't say what method is used. Um, uh, digestive enzymes, various nutritional factors such as fatty acids, vitamins A, C, and zinc, and special diets such as we were just talking about, candida diets, fine gold diet, gluten-free, casein-free, rotation diet, and diets that withheld various allergens, most notably wheat and dairy. Another thing that... Um, that parents noted as very helpful was methyl B12 injections. Okay. And if parents would like to look for this report, the website of the Autism Research Institute is www.autism.com. Pretty simple to remember there. Well, we don't have uh, much time left, uh, Dr. Levitin. Um, What kinds of You've you've talked about toxins. What kinds of metabolic pathways are impaired in those with autism that can cause problems with detoxification, and what kinds of nutritional uh, measures can help these pathways detoxify the body better? Uh, You mentioned B12, methyl B12. Uh, Yes, uh, methyl B12, which provides um, methyl units to the body. Um, Methylation and sulfation defects have been noted in people uh, with autistic features, and without um, methylation and saltation functioning properly, cell membranes can't be 
produced by the body properly and neurotransmitters can't be produced by the, the body properly. Reduced glutathione, which is the form of glutathione we need, can't be produced properly. And this affects almost all body systems. Glutathione is an antioxidant. It helps with detoxification, especially in the immune system, the nervous system, and the gastrointestinal system. So we're pretty much talking about everything that's malfunctioning in uh, children with autism. Um, I think there are some ways to detoxify. I think it's probably a lengthy procedure. Um, Some of the ways that are more low-tech and more easy to implement would be uh, making sure to be using sea salt, unrefined sea salt, which is going to give your body um, minerals. The more we can add healthful minerals into our body, the more the body is in a gentle way going to release toxic minerals. Also using mineral supplements, good quality mineral supplements, um, Epsom salt bath, with bath, which I've heard some parents really swear by, and also saunas that can cause sweating. Um, you have to get a special kind of sauna that is infrared and doesn't have any um, you know, toxins in the glue that holds it together. Um, but I think these are some of the methods that parents can use at home for detoxing, helping their children detoxify. And don't forget the vitamin D3 during cold and flu season. Oh, of course not. How could I forget that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Levitin, do you have any take-home messages that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I guess um, my main take-home message uh, would be, first of all, try to pursue toxin-free living as much as you can. None of us can do it perfectly because it's not possible, but avoid foods that have toxins and additives. Avoid fragrance chemicals. Avoid chlorinated water. Do as much as you can to free your life of unnecessary toxins, things that we have some control over. We don't have control over external events. Control what goes on in your home. Also, as much as you can, parents really have to educate themselves and question any elective procedure that a doctor or another practitioner wants to do to your child. As I said before, there's no reason why a vaccination or any other elective procedure has to be done on any particular day or in many cases done at all. Educate yourself. Make your own choice. Don't be pressured into doing something that is not right for you. I think that all people should find a doctor who respects their choices and respects choices for their children and what they're going to do for their children's health. And don't allow anybody to bully you into giving vaccines to your child that you do not want your child to have. Well, respect. That's a lovely message, Dr. Levitin, and I want to thank you for sharing all this eye-opening information with listeners about a better way to support more healthy generations of children to come. Uh, I certainly hope we see a healthier generation in the future. And to our listeners, we will see Dr. Janet Levitin, who will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2012 conference in May. Registration is open at www.autismone.com. My guest next week is Bob Taylor of Dog Wish, when we'll be talking about the amazing therapeutic benefits of service dogs. Thank you to this program's sponsor, OxyHealth, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.